Well, welcome to all of you. Um, we're going to be um, exploring a story from Genesis chapter 13. So um, if you all are interested um, and have your Bibles along, um, we're going to kind of look at that story and then we're going to try to think about dealing with conflict, um, not conflict within ourselves, but conflict with other people. And um, maybe thinking um, kind of on a one-to-one standpoint, but a little bit on a church standpoint, too. And so um, I'm going to make this disclaimer up at the top that these are not um, John's um, rules for solving all conflict in your life. I don't know that there's such a, a book, but if there is, go out and buy it and ignore everything I said, um, if it's good. If it's not good, then you can listen. Anyway, uh, there's lots and lots of books out there that talk about how to deal with conflict. Okay, so in a situation where, um, you know, hermits don't deal with this, right? So this is, none of you all are hermits, I don't think. Um, but if you live with other people, if you live around other people, if you go to church with other people, you're going to at some point have some tension in your life. And the question is, what do you do with that? Particularly when it's the other person's fault. Okay, because it usually is, right? I mean, you know, if we, you know, we'll put percentages on things and we'll say, you know, I, Maybe, maybe, you know, we usually are pretty, pretty precise. So maybe 7% of this problem is my problem. And I would say about 93% is that other person's misunderstanding. We're not going to say that they're to blame, but if they just heard what we were saying, everything would have been okay. And um, so we are going to be looking at that this morning. So... This um, story begins with financial tension. So um, most of us don't have enough money that, um, that this is a problem for us. But, um, you know, I've seen lots of, um, lots of situations where it could be a problem. So 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts or desires which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so... You know, the problem at the beginning of this story has to do with wealth and um, the fact that Abram and Lot were too wealthy. Um, and as I was reading on this subject, it seems like this is a point of tension in a lot of families. Um, one elderly woman had a will that divided her money among her children, um, and it was pretty precise on that, but she had a pretty extensive purse collection. I can't imagine that, like, affecting me if... Uh, I don't think my mom has many purses. She usually had one big black one when I was growing up. And then she had a, a, a phone camera, uh, phone camera, phone phone bag she carried around. And so I, I didn't want either of those things, actually. Uh, but um, when she died, she did not designate who was going to get which purse. And this created immense conflict as her daughters fought over which purse should go to them. It just seems like a crazy thing. Um, 
In another situation, an elderly man had two children who lived with him and cared for him while he saw his other two children less frequently. Um, and so he left a bigger legacy to the two children who were providing care for him and a smaller one for the others. And the end result was that the two distant children sued the other two to try to break the will because they did not think this was fair. And we'd say, well, those are all ungodly wretches who, you know, they, um, they didn't understand. But unfortunately, this is not, this is not um, restricted to ungodly um, non-Christian people. And so as we look at the passage from 1 Timothy, um, I think there are a couple of things that we can draw out of that. Uh, first of all, the issue is not the amount of money we have. Um, we can all think of people who have more money than us. Um, but it's the desire for money. It's the desire for material things. The pursuit of wealth gets us into trouble. Um, and it pulls our focus from things of God and places it on what Paul would say are unimportant things. Um, so, and this is a this is an important thing that we are going to need to think about when we're dealing with interpersonal relationships. What things do we value the most? So, if our desire is for money or for material things or for purses or shoes or whatever it is, um, we're going to get into a lot of trouble. Um, and the second thing is that Paul says there is an antidote for the love of money. And it has one word, it's contentment. Um, contentment is something that we all struggle with. Um, I struggle with it sometimes. Um, you know, whatever, whatever your situation is, as good as it could be, it could be a little better. Um, somebody once told me that the enemy of good is better. Um, so, you know... Um, and a surgeon told me that's that's a mistake. Whenever you're doing surgery on somebody and you think it's good enough, you should just close them up and not try to make it look better on the inside. The patient won't see it. And um, if you start messing around, sometimes you can get into more trouble. So you all do surgery. Just keep that in mind, I guess. So in reading the book of Genesis, we don't find Abram pursuing wealth. Um, he has accumulated over time. Um, God had different people give him stuff. Um, but he doesn't seem to be particularly interested in it. And actually, um, later on, um, whenever the king of Sodom um, told him, you know, all this loot, you take it, and, um, and you, I'll just have the people. Abram said, no, I don't, I don't want your stuff. Um, so, so that's kind of the setup for this. Um, so we're going to start at the beginning of Genesis chapter 13. We're going to read little, little sections, talk about each section, and then, as I say, we're going to try to talk about some applications. So Genesis 13, 1 through 4. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had in Lot with him to the south, or uh, the Hebrew would say the Negev, the desert area, on the southern portion of the land that he was promised. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Not here, but, um, but the um, location in the land, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So this comes at the tail end of chapter 12. So chapter 12, we know, is when Abram went to Egypt, um, and he, um, 
and he did not behave very well. And he lied about his wife and uh, kind of got into trouble. God protected them both. And so here he's coming out of Egypt. Um, and, you know, he's co compromised his wife's integrity, his own integrity. And um, he's not been the man of faith that we think of um, when we think of Abram. And somebody once said, and I don't know who this was. I Googled it. So, you know, that's the extent of my research. But somebody once said, what is important is not what you do, it's what you do next. Um, and the point is not that we should deliberately go out and sin, but we should not compound our sin whenever we get into trouble. And when we see that we're going the wrong direction, we should turn around. So if you've ever had a GPS running in your vehicle and you drive past the road that you're supposed to turn at, your GPS will say, Make a U-turn, or it will say, turn right immediately, or sell you something. And when you hear that, your conscience is telling you that you should turn and not keep going the same direction. So if you think to yourself, you know, my GPS is just a computer, and it's not very smart, and I know better, you may get into big trouble. Now, GPSs are wrong sometimes, so I'm not going to say always do what your GPS tells you, but, um, but the important thing is that when we find ourselves in a bad situation, um, whether it's of our own creating or not, we need to do something better next. So Judas did the worst thing possible after doing the worst thing possible. He betrayed his savior his master and then he killed himself and i don't know to me there would have been forgiveness um later on lot in when he fled sodom he went to a little city he didn't go to abram and say you know i am sorry i've done some bad things i've made mistakes i want to be right with you and with god and yet the prodigal son, who was just as bad as any one of these people, when he found that he was at the end of himself and at the end of his money and he, he had nothing left, he went back to his father. And his father was waiting for him, ready to take him back. And so here we find Abram at the end of this bad chapter of his life coming back and calling on the name of the Lord. And so when we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, the place we should start is with worship. And worship can be what we're doing here this morning, but it can be a lot of other things too. There are times when we need to seek out a special time and place, like what Galen was talking about this morning, where we are going to rekindle our love and connection with God. And for Abram, this was a place near Bethel where he first built an altar. Um, so Abram had not confessed that he was a follower of God to Pharaoh. Um, but here he's calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, you all know the song, Come Thou Found. And Come Thou Found is a, is a song, a hymn that, uh, that modern Mennonites, um, people don't really like the one verse. Um, and so, um, the, the verse says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel prone to leave 
the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it, seal for thy courts above. And, and both John D. Martin and um, uh, maybe John Overholter, his brother, changed the words to try to, to try to say, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know. They, they tried to make it so that you weren't prone to wander. Um, and if you look in the Purple Martin book, it, it says um, something a little different. Um, maybe they thought that this is admitting defeat. Maybe um, it's just not positive enough, enough for us to think about. Uh, but we need to admit the world is attractive to us. Egypt is a draw. And when we realize that we've lost our way, we need to return to the simple altar of the past and kneeling there, call on the name of the Lord. So strife, Genesis 13, verses 5 through 9. Lot also, went, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So this, they're both wealthy. Uh, Abram's probably a little more wealthy because he's older, but anyway. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock the Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land so Abram said to Lot please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are brethren is not the whole land before you Please, separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And so Abram and Lot had too much stuff. And the issue is that the, the land there is not very rich. Um, so it's, it's a lot of scrub. It's a lot of sort of desert kind of places. And the pasture wasn't enough for both of their flocks. And I don't think Abram and Lot had personally any conflicts, but um, they, Abram, anyway, got wind of the fact that their men were fighting over this. And, um, you know, you can imagine um, Lot's men are, are guiding their sheep out to, to some place where they, um, they had heard there was um, good, um, good pasture, and they show up, and, um, and Lot's men are there already, or vice versa. And there, there's just this tension there, because there, there's only so much space, and um, and they weren't they weren't feeling good about this situation, and they were angry. You know, if they had to travel 30 miles to get pasture, well, Abram's uh, men only had to travel five miles because they got the better pasture. Well, this is wasn't so good. Um, and it's easy to be critical of Abram and Lot. Um, they they should have been able to get along, right? They they should have figured some way out where they wouldn't have to separate. Um, and I was thinking about this, like in terms of church groups, because it, there's a lot of different church groups out there. It, um, there's over 200 main denominations in the United States, and there's even more small church groups that aren't even a part of a, a major denomination. Even within Mennonites, um, there are lots and lots of different groups. And so I thought, you know, um, Let's, let's think about something that's kind of non-threatening. So we're not going to talk about Mennonites. We'll talk about Anglicans. Because how, how many of you are Anglican this morning? Uh, my son is, apparently. So anyway, so, um, so we know the Anglican Church, the Church of England, started when Henry VIII, um, his wife, 
couldn't give him a son. And so he wanted to get rid of his wife, and the Catholic Church um, didn't want to let him get rid of his wife. And so, um, and so he separated from the Catholic Church and formed the Church of England. Um, so, you know, maybe not the best um, start, but there are probably some good Christian people in the church who were just trying to serve God even though um, their king wasn't. So we jump forward to the 1730s, and a man named John Wesley became disenchanted with the Church of England. He felt that there was a lack of fire of God and that the church was not pushing people to individual holiness the way that they should. And so he started his own group. Um, and there have been other offshoots from the Church of England. The Puritans would have come off of them. Um, but this was the birth of Methodism in both England and America. So if we jump forward to the late 1800s, um, suddenly the Methodist church wasn't good enough. And so there are other churches like the Holiness Movement, the Westlands, and the Church of the Nazarene. Um, each one of them was started by men who thought that they were going to rekindle the same kinds of things that the Westlands were trying to capture when they first left the Anglican Church in the beginning. And I bring this up because it feels like it's a pretty charged thing to talk about um, church splits. And yet, at the same time, I think there's a real tendency in church groups for churches to get comfortable and to lose their first love. Um, the issue is a mixture of inertia and a lack of personal relationship with God of the members. Um, but are you here this morning because you love Jesus or because you're comfortable? It's just something that you do. So, so when a church gets comfortable, there are men inside the church who, who chafe against this sort of situation, and, and often they, they start their own group. And I suppose it feels easier to do that because you're separating the real on-fire people from the, from the, the chap, I guess you would say. And um, it's just easier to do that than to revive the church. But the problem is that these sort of church groups end up going down the same path. And so 30, 40, 50 years down the road, they're very much like the church groups that they left. And so it is a challenge, isn't it? How do you keep the church on fire? And what do you do in a situation where the church isn't on fire? How do you, I don't know, bring kerosene to, to church meetings? Well, that's probably not a good idea, but... Um, Sometimes it seems like separation is the only solution when people just can't get along. So that was Abram's solution. Um, and he told Lot a couple different things. He said he desired peace. Um, Please let there be no strife between you and me. Abram and Lot hadn't fought yet, but Abram could sense that if things continued as they were, they would end up in conflict. And he wanted to take the situation on early. Um, and so Abram desired peace over property. Um, and, and we see this. Abram never owned any land except for the land where he and his wife were buried. Um, but on the other hand, God had promised to give all this land to him and his descendants. And he trusted God's promise. He didn't need to worry about what part of the land Lot chose because God's promise was certain. And when we're dealing with these sorts of situations, we do need to be willing to give up our rights in order to see ourselves at peace with others. Matthew 5, 38 through 42, it's a well-known passage from the 
Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it has that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away tunics, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So I don't know all of what Jesus was saying here, but this is something that is really hard to put into practice. Um, But I think the emphasis here is not on the relationship within the church, but relationships with an enemy, someone who's outside the church. Uh, We have a different responsibility to to someone who's in the church, don't we? Uh, Our desire for somebody who's inside the may lead us into conflict with that person because we desire to see their spiritual healing. Uh, But our focus is on winning souls and achieving peace. And Jesus over and over makes it clear that material things in particular are not as important as cross-bearing loving and following him. So healing the conflict. So Genesis 13, 10 through 13, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Um, so just a little note here. So, so he mentions Zoar, and it's so because of the sentence structure, it's a little difficult to understand. Um, Zoar is not in Egypt. Okay, he's saying that this land is beautiful the same way that the Garden of Eden was beautiful, the same way that the Nile Delta was beautiful. This whole stretch of area between um, the Jordan and this city called Zoar that was on the other side, and Lot fled to that city later on. Um, so it's not, it's not I, I read it and I was, couldn't figure this out, and anyway... So maybe you, um, so we hear, see here a contrast. Um, Abraham has said to Lot, you can choose first. Um, Abraham was older. Um, he was like a father figure for Lot, and, um, and he certainly would have had every right to, to choose first. Um, and so he says, you know, Lot, you go ahead and choose, and whatever you choose, I'll take, I'll take what's left. Okay? So, you know, there's, um, I think Laura and Mary would, um, would have um, um, they would have a cookie or something like that, and, and they would they would divide the cookie, and whoever di- made the division, the other person got to choose which piece they wanted, right? Um, but here, Lot's getting to divide the cookie and to choose the piece that he wants. He he gets to do it all, um, and so you know, Lot could have said, you know, Abram, I know you are you are willing to let me choose first, but I want you to choose first. You are the older person, and you have the right. But he didn't. He just said, thanks. And he chose first. Um, and so he chose the well-watered plain. So this was the best land. Um, so what did Lot choose based on? Well, he 
chose based on three things, beauty, wealth, and ease. Um, the land here was beautiful in a way that the rocky land of southern Israel generally isn't. Um, it would be easier to find pasture in this area, so he was a, um, someone who had lots of flocks, and, um, and there was a possibility that he could settle down, that he would no longer live a nomad's life, and certainly he would not need to, to go back and forth. Um, but the author here makes it clear that this is a morally risky path. Um, the people of Sodom had a reputation. They were wicked before the Lord, and we find out later on what that meant. And this story ends with Lot pitching his tent as far as Sodom. So he's not living in the city. He's still living in a tent, um, but he's kind of moving in that direction. And if there's enough pasture, there's no particular reason why he couldn't move into Sodom and, uh, and set up up shop there. So we, we have contrast, don't we? We have a contrast between Abram and his unselfishness and his desire for peace and Lot and his desire to see, um, to see comfort and wealth in his own life. So did Lot have options? And I was thinking about this and I mean he could have done a lot of different things. So these were two men in a very, in a decent sized land okay so Israel is not a very big country um, but it's not like there were only two spots to choose from so you said you know we could you know you can move down to to Sodom or you can um, or you can you know live down here in the south in the desert um, you could easily you know go up near the Sea of Galilee or the Jezreel Valley or all sorts of different places so some place that hopefully didn't have quite so bad a reputation um, you know, or maybe he could have said, you know, I, I, you know, Uncle Abram, I really value your input into my life, and I, I will send my my men and our and my overseers over this direction. But I'm going to continue to live with you because I feel like your influence on my life is valuable. Um, so it's important to realize that the decisions we make today will influence where we're at three or four years from now. Um, so, you know. If, if I asked you, you know, if you want to learn to play the piano, um, some of you all know how, know how to play the piano, some of you don't. Uh, you know, some of you would raise your hand, but the question is, are you willing to practice every day between now and three years from now so that you're better than you are today? And the answer for a lot of us is that we don't have the time for it or we don't have the, the um, you know, the, the impetus to do that. So... So often when we make decisions, we ask the wrong questions. Um, and I've mentioned this before, but we ask things like, is there anything wrong with it? Is there a verse in the Bible that specifically says not to do it? And is there any financial benefit for me? Um, will it make me more comfortable? And better questions look like this. Is this going to strengthen my relationship with God? Am I going to struggle to maintain my Christian testimony if I make this decision? Based on where I want to be in 10 years, what decision should I make today? Based on where I want my children to be in 10 years, what example should I be setting for them and what decision should I make? And too often we just make decisions that are short-sighted. We want comfort. We want... We want the things that the world around us wants. And we aren't as strong as we think we are. 
And so we put ourselves in situations that are not good for us. So Lot chose a way that seemed to lead to wealth and ended up having him lose everything, um, all of his material possessions and his wife besides. So Satan will do everything he can to limit our effectiveness. So he's going to uh, try to get us to give up the faith, but if he can't get us to do that, he will at least distract us so that we are not active, vibrant children of God. So the last portion of this chapter talks about God reaffirming the promise. Verses 14 through 18. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Uh, We don't know how Abram felt when Lot left. Uh, Maybe he just felt relief because this this point of tension in his life was gone. Um, Sometimes you feel that way when there's just, things are not going well and you're just ready for, you know, if the relationship is done, then just, you know, just leave. Uh, It's like a stone in your shoe. Uh, You just want to take the stone out. Um, Maybe he felt sadness at the direction that Lot was taking. Maybe he felt some annoyance at Lot selfishly choosing the best land. Maybe he was concerned about Lot and about what his future would look like. But what we know is that at this moment, God chose to reaffirm his promise to Abram. All the land that Abram could see, north, south, east, and west, would be his and his descendants' inheritance. So Lot may have chosen the plain of the Jordan, um, but someday that plain would be Abram's descendants. Um, And Abram would have innumerable descendants. We don't know exactly how many Jewish people there are in the world today, maybe 16 million. There's certainly, that's not innumerable. But in a sense, the promises that were granted to Abram have been carried over into the church. There are many, many people who are the descendants of Abram in a spiritual sense. John the Baptist told the people in Matthew 3, verse 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children of Abram from these stones. And he has, hasn't he? God has made us the the descendants of Abraham in a real way. So God told Abram to, to explore the land. Um, and this, I, I don't know, I was thinking about this, and I, I thought about, you know, if you, like, just started pulling into people's driveway, and you, um, and you um, got out and started walking around their yard, and they came out and they said, well, what are you doing? It could be dangerous, I don't know. Anyway, and you said, oh, God has promised to give me your land. And I just was kind of looking it over uh, for when you move out, and it's mine one day. Uh, <laughs> seems like a kind of a strange thing, but... You know, God says, you know, go ahead, walk through the land. Everything that you see is going to be 
your children's. Um, and so we finish here with Abram building another altar. This story is bookended by Abram worshiping. So we're going to move on here to application. So how do we deal with conflict in our own lives? And I've been listening to a book, which is not a Christian book, called um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's by a man named Dale Carnegie. He wrote this back in the 1930s, maybe. And um, I think he makes some very good points in the book. Um, he thinks that a lot of, well, thought, I guess he's dead now, I believe. Um, the, a lot of the issues in our lives have to do with when we bring negative en- energy to bear on situations and focus on ourselves and our own needs rather than listening to and complimenting others. Um, and so our goal is to improve communication with other people. And he talks about just listening to people, asking them questions, and tell stories about how he would go to a party and he would meet somebody and he would just ask them everything about what they did and listen to them. And they, they would come away and say things like, you know, that man is the best conversationalist. And you say, well, I didn't say anything, actually. I just asked some questions about what they did and expressed interest in it. And he said, you know, I'm not putting this on when I do this. I care about what this person does. And I do find the things that they're sharing with me interesting. And so often we are more concerned with what we're going to say next, with what interesting things we are doing and what we can bring to the conversation. And we shouldn't be hypocrites. We shouldn't come to a situation and, and you know, just put on that we're interested in somebody else. I'll figure that out. Um, but I do know that, like just even as, as a physician, when I sit down if I'm willing to just sit and listen to my patients, they will tell me what's going on with them. Um, but doctors don't do that a lot of times. They, they, there's been studies that show within 20, 25 seconds, doctors are asking, um, asking their first question. And if they have to interrupt their patients, that's what they do. And, and that's not a good thing. That lets the patient know who's important in this relationship. And, and so as we come into the relationship, it is important that we come with humility. So we need to deal with conflicts. Um, so when we begin and we see a division that is developing, we need to stop and attempt to heal the rift. So um, I don't know whose fault this was. As I said earlier, Abram and Lot's men were probably both at fault. Um, but Abram was the man enough to say, you know, Lot, things are not good between our men. And we need to move forward. Um, and it's easy for us to tell ourselves, you know, it's the other person's responsibility to do that. But whether we're in charge or the other person is in charge, we can open the lines of dialogue and communication. Second thing is that we need to identify clearly the issues at hand. Um, and this isn't always as easy as it sounds. Um, we usually want to look good in situations. Most people aren't going to say, you know, the issue that I have is that um, you make more money than I do or something like that. Um, but if Abram and Lot had sat down and talked a long time and agreed to have peace, but they hadn't talked about their flocks and about pasture and all that kind of stuff, um, it wouldn't have worked out. 
Um, and if we don't know the reason why there's conflict between us and somebody else, we need to ask. And we need to ask non-defensively. So there's a tendency for somebody to say, you know what? You said this and this and this. And we say, whoa, I didn't mean that. And then we interrupt them just as they're ta- starting to tell us why they're upset with us. And sometimes we just need to listen and hear them out completely. We need to be willing to give up rights. So Abram had the right of first choice. Uh, my guess is that even if he had chosen first, he wouldn't have chosen um, the area around Sodom. Um, but we need to be willing to let other people have rights that are ours. Um, this is Christ-like behavior. I'm thinking of washing feet and what that means. Um, so value the important things. So if we're going to rank the things that are important in life, uh, the most important thing is our relationship with God. Um, and this is followed up by our relationship with others. Um, Jesus said that the two most important commands were to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, unfortunately, too often we value, um, well, you know, even things that sound pretty good, you know, the moral high ground. We're, gonna, we're going to defend um, the important stuff in life, and, um, and we don't love people as we're doing it. And that's a problem. Next thing is look for commonality. So, so Abram said to Lot, we are brothers. So were they brothers? No, they weren't brothers. He was his uncle. But they had common things. They had family. They, they were family. And so we need, to, we need to bring commonality to these kinds of conversations. Conversations. Be willing to compromise. So there's some things that we are not going to be able to compromise on. That's, that's okay, uh, you know. Um, but there's a lot of times when we're just we're just pretty stubborn about stuff that's not worth being stubborn over. And then accept others' choices. So Lot chose the best land. He was willing to separate, and we don't find Abram bellyaching over that saying it wasn't fair. Um, and, you know, kind of the final thing, this is kind of a disappointing end to this story, but sometimes the only solution is separation. Um, and that's a, that's a sad point. Um, but the most important thing is that when we come out of this, that our relationship with God is going to be maintained. So as I come to the end of this, um, I was thinking about the story of Amelia Earhart. So you all have heard of Amelia Earhart. Um, and um, and there were a lot of things that that happened around her last flight that um, that I don't know if they were all her fault. There were probably some mistakes <laughs> mistakes were made. Um, obviously, she didn't she didn't make it to where she was intending to go. So we um, so she was flying around the world. She she went different places. She had a co-pilot um, who was a navigator named Fred Noonan. Um, but navigating in an airplane is not the same as navigating from a ship. So, um, so you're up in the sky and you're trying to, you know, shoot stars and different things like that. And, and you, um, 
can usually get within about 30 or 40 miles of where you are, but um, that's like great. And this is before GPS. And so, um, so she's flying around the world. They knew that the hardest part of their, their um, flight was going to be from New Zealand to this tiny little atoll in the middle of the, of the um, Pacific Ocean called, um, called Howland Island. Um, for whatever reason, the United States had gone out there and built a, an airstrip out in the middle of the Pacific. There wasn't anything else there. Um, and so the Coast Guard was going to make sure that her plane had fuel for, uh, um, for refueling and that she could then fly from there on to Hawaii. And so the question was, how is Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, going to find this island out in the middle of the Pacific? It's a tiny island. So this is not like finding um, San Francisco and you just fly to California and then you decide whether you're going to go south or north because, you know. Um, so the, the Coast Guard requested information from her about how they could assist her, and she never really talked to anybody. She sent them some telegrams saying, radio frequencies that she thought she would use for communication and for radio direction finding. So there was some kind of a device where they, um, pilots could, um, could tune into this frequency and if they were flying towards it, it would make a louder noise and if they were flying away from it, it would make a quieter noise. And um, the frequency she identified for radio direction finding was one that her plane actually couldn't use. So it was kind of strange. So she wasn't maybe as familiar with her radio as what she should have been so on July 2nd, 1937, she took off from Ley Airport um, in New Zealand, headed for Howland Island. Um, and this is a couple thousand mile flight, so it's a long flight. She, basically, she had an airplane that was filled with fuel. That, that was all. There was space for her and for her navigator, and there was not much else. And so at 6 a.m. on July 2nd, because they crossed the international date line, so they'd gone back in time, um, they crossed um, the Coast Guard on Howland Island began to get radio messages from, from her. Um, but as time went by, the, the messages got louder and louder. Um, and they tried to answer. They tried to call into her. And they realized very quickly that she could not transmit to them. I'm sorry, she could not receive their transmissions. She could transmit to them and she could tell them, we think we're almost on you. We think we're getting close. Um, and she wasn't picking anything up. She wasn't picking up the radio homing transmissions they were sending out. And so the Itasca, which was the, the ship that was on the island, fired up her boilers. They sent up billows of smoke up into the sky, hoping that she would see them, because they knew she's flying somewhere out there. She should be within 50, 60 miles maybe of us. And she kept transmitting, kept transmitting. At 8.43, she made her last transmission which said that she was flying north-south on a line at specific coordinates, and she was never heard from again. Um, some people believe she crash-landed on an island. Some people think that she landed in the Pacific, but, you know, we don't know. Um, a lot of people think that her radio antenna got knocked off the plane at Lay Airfield. It was weighted down, and the antenna actually was on the bottom side of the airplane, and so she could receive, I'm sorry, she could transmit airplane from the airplane, but she could not receive transmissions. And this speaks to me of communication. So often we can transmit, but we cannot receive. 
We don't hear what the other people are saying. And this is a perfect recipe for disaster. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not for only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And part of maintaining the mind of Christ is understanding the importance of the brotherhood, of the people around us, of listening to them, of hearing where their hearts are. And too often, like Amelia Earhart, we have no trouble at all transmitting. We can tell people everything we think about a subject, but we don't hear what the other people are saying. And so I would pray that our conflicts could be healed, that we could hear each other in our homes, in our churches, and become more Christ-like in that way. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, I thank you that you've been here this morning. I do pray, Lord, that you would be with your people. Help us to be like you. Lord, I pray that we could hear, hear your voice, hear the voices of those around us. Lord, just make your church holy, blameless, a bride without spot or wrinkle, worthy of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.